0: You're listening to Comedy Central.
1: Hey everybody, I'm Trevor Noah. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Social Distancing Show. On tonight's episode, we wanted to talk about the only conversation every American is having right now. What do we want to do about the police? Do you abolish them? Do you defund them? Do you make them smoke the whole cotton of tear gas so that they learn their lesson? Well, tonight, instead of guessing, or using some random account on Twitter to try and figure it out, we're gonna be speaking to actual organizers and some of the actual people who have been behind the Defund the Police and Abolish the Police movements. And these people have been in it from the very beginning. So if you're confused, or if you don't agree, or if you just wanna try and figure out what the hell is going on, well, tonight's episode is for you. Specifically you. Yeah, you, Brian, I see you. So let's do it. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears Edition. All right, before we get into the conversation that's happening among activists and everyone in America, let's catch up with the ongoing conversation in Washington. Because while the movement in the streets has been building up steam, Democrats in Washington have been scrambling for a way to respond. And yesterday, I think they figured it out.
2: Democratic
3: lawmakers are receiving criticism after a silent tribute to George Floyd in the US Congress yesterday. Some were not a fan of the colorful kente cloth scarf draped around their necks, saying they turned the traditional African textile into a political prop.
1: Okay, I understand the symbolic gesture of kneeling to remember George Floyd. What I don't understand is why they had to dress like extras from coming to America too. In fact, a lot of people were confused about why the Democrats wore African cloth to talk about George Floyd and police brutality. It felt like they were trying too hard. But I'm gonna be honest, I was just glad that they managed to talk Nancy Pelosi down from the original outfit she had planned. It was a step too far. And look, however much you wanna blame Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats for doing this, we also have to assign some of the blame to the African store owner who knew full well that no good can come from one person buying 50 kente cloths. No, Nancy, you have to trust me, eh? The more kente cloth you wear, the less offensive it becomes. Okay, bye-bye. Now, to be fair, the Democrats weren't just kneeling and wearing kente cloth. They also unveiled police reform legislation that would make some pretty big changes. It would ban no-knock warrants in drug cases to try and avoid situations like the one that got Brianna Taylor killed while she was sleeping in her own bed. It would make chokeholds a civil rights violation to try and prevent police from taking another Eric Garner's life. And one of the biggest measures in this legislation would make it easier to prosecute police who use excessive force, as opposed to now where it's almost impossible to convict a police officer if they've done something wrong. Like now you, you need to catch them on video, then have a DA that's willing to prosecute them, then have a jury that actually wants to hold cops accountable. And even if you get all that, you still need to find the cops Horcrux and destroy it. Otherwise they just get to go back out on the force. But while Democrats are proposing legislation to reform the police, unsurprisingly, most Republicans in Congress don't seem to be on board. And as for President Trump, he's doubling down hard on his support for the police.
0: President Trump held a meeting with police union officials and local and state law enforcement officials yesterday at the White House. He vowed there will be no dismantling of American policing.
2: There won't be defunding, there won't be a uh, dismantling of our police. And uh, there's not gonna be any disbanding of our police. Our police have been letting us uh, live in peace. And we wanna make sure we don't have any bad actors in there. And. Sometimes you'll see some horrible things like we witnessed recently, but uh, 99, I say 99.9, 9, but let's go with
1: 99% of them are great, great people. Yes, 99% of all police are great people. And I guess it's just unlucky that protesters happen to keep meeting with the bad 1% over and over and over again. I guess those guys work a lot of overtime. And you know, I always find it amazing how Trump manages to always see the good in the groups that he likes. He says that the police are 99% great people. Charlottesville he said there were people that were good on both sides. He said the armed protesters in Michigan, the same people who stormed the state house, were very good people who were just frustrated. Like, clearly, if you're on Trump's good side, he will find a way to interpret anything you do in the best way possible. Like, if Trump likes you, he could walk in on you in bed with his wife and he'd probably be like, my wife and my best friend taking a nap together. Good people. Now, look, let's be clear. I'm not saying that all cops are bad, but the problems with the police are much more widespread than Trump is acknowledging. Because every single time, every single time a police department gets audited or investigated, the results that come back time and time again show deep rot and systemic issues often from the top. It's like turning on a black light in a hotel room. There's no way you're only gonna find one stain. And unlike Mitt Romney, who was marching in Washington over the weekend saying Black Lives Matter, Trump has never expressed support for the Black Lives Matter movement. And yesterday, his press secretary claimed that Trump doesn't need to say Black Lives Matter because his support with black people is overwhelming. Kelly, does he agree in general, the way that Mitt Romney stated over the weekend he does with the core message
2: of Black Lives Matter? Yeah, Mitt Romney um, can say three words outside on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, but I would note this, that President Trump won 8% of the black vote, Mitt Romney won 2% of the black vote.
1: Okay, firstly, that's bullshit. Romney didn't get 2% of the black vote, he got 6% while running against the only black president ever. But either way, this is just sad. I can't even believe this is a thing. You're gonna brag about getting 8% of the black vote? Really? 8% out of 100? Bragging about getting 8% of the black vote is like some loser bragging to his friend, like, you know how Susie said she just sees you as a friend? Well, she told me she sees me as an older brother. So... Trump's position on the protesters around him defending the police, around Black Lives Matter, it seems pretty clear. But, but just in case you were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, well, this morning, the president of the United States tweeted this.
2: President Trump is questioning the motives of the 75-year-old activist shoved to the ground by Buffalo police officers during a protest last Friday. The president tweeted, Martin Gugino could be an Antifa provocateur and said, I watched, he fell harder than was pushed. Could be a setup. Cugino remains in serious but stable condition at the hospital. This is one of the
0: more alarming
2: tweets we have ever seen from President
0: Trump. It appears to be based on a news clip Uh, from the One America News Network, which is a network for conspiracy theory kooks.
2: Gugino is a longtime peace activist and volunteer for Catholic Worker, which is a movement dedicated to justice and
1: peace. Yeah. Trump is so desperate to defend the police that instead of admitting that maybe they used excessive force and that none of them helped a person who was bleeding out on the ground, he turns around and blames the old man from that video for being an Antifa provocateur who busted his head open on purpose? And I mean, I can't believe that I actually have to say, but like, that is some batshit crazy theory. Let me tell you something. If someone came up to me with a plan that involved me busting my head open on the sidewalk, I would ask them to come up with a better plan. I mean, how do you look at that video, see that old man, and think that he's an Antifa provocateur. You think that old man is causing chaos. Who sees that? Like, I I feel like Trump is the kind of person who watched the movie Up and he thinks it's a story about an elderly terrorist who hijacks a balloon house. But I guess with this tweet and everything else that Trump has said and done over the past couple of weeks, Trump has clearly picked which side he is on in this debate. And, I mean, forget about 8% of the black vote, if this is Trump's attitude towards reforming the police, well, there's no kente cloth in the world big enough to make up for it. Coming up, we'll be having a discussion with leading experts and activists about fixing America's police problem. So stick around, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. You know, there's so much discussion out there right now about how to address America's problem of police brutality. Do you reform the police? Do you defund the police? Do you abolish the police? And to help myself and everyone who's watching get a better handle on it, I wanted to talk to some of America's experts and activists about how to reform America's police departments. So, earlier today, I spoke to Patrice Cullors, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Josie Duffy Rice, a journalist and lawyer, Sam Sinyangwe, co-founder of Campaign Zero, Michael Denzel Smith, who is a Type Media Center fellow and author, and Alex Vitale, Brooklyn College professor and author of The End of Policing. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. This is the most people we've spoken to at one point. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Patrice, I'm gonna jump straight in with you. As a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, did you ever think you would see the day when everyone from Amazon to Mitt Romney would be proudly proclaiming Black Lives Matter?
3: No, no, I did not see that day coming. Um, I know, I knew that uh, when we started Black Lives Matter, Alicia, Opal and I, that um, it would resound deeply with folks across the country, especially Black people and Black people across the globe. But did I think that some of the largest corporations would have it? Plastered on their
1: screens. No, not at all. Do you feel like Black Lives Matter has achieved its purpose now, or or do you think that a lot of people are using Black Lives Matter as a as a cover to say, hey, we, we're we're good. Like some people say, yes, it's good that people are saying it. Others say it's not enough. As as a co-founder, I feel like you're better placed than most people to speak to it.
3: Sure, I think seven years ago, saying Black Lives Matter was incredibly radical. I think that uh, many of us sort of um use that term as a marker on where our elected officials stood on where appointed officials stood you know if they said black lives matter we knew that okay we were getting we were getting into them but if they said all lives matter we knew they were a lost cause and so seven years later i think it's not just about black lives matter it's about What does that actually mean? What do we mean when we say Black Lives Matter, which is why defund the police has become such a huge and resounding call. And I'm really Mm -hmm. proud of the conversation that we're having as not just a movement, but as American people and people living inside this country.
1: Right now, I think more than ever before in America and in around the world, people are asking questions about policing. Are there different ways to police? Can policing be improved? Is policing even essential in the way that we see it every single day? And the reason I've gathered all of you on this panel is because, you know, you're some of the voices who have been most vocal in talking about policing as we see it, you know? Everything from the reforms that could be done today to long-term solutions that could change the way we see uh, enforcement of laws in the future. And so, you know, maybe I'll I'll start with you, um, Sam, as part of 8 Can't Wait. Your organization got a shout-out from, um, you know, former President Barack Obama. And 8 Can't Wait was, was initially, you know, uh, and I think it still is, an organization where you went for police reforms that can be done, like, immediately. What, explain to me a little bit about what the thinking behind that was. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we looked
4: at the academic literature. There are over 40 years of literature that shows that more restrictive use of force policies can reduce killings by police and police shootings overall, both fatal and non-fatal. We recognize that you know these are things that cities can do right now, Uh, immediately. A mayor can do it. A police chief can do it um, as a harm reduction strategy. But I think ultimately, I think where the country is right now is striving for a lot more. It's not just about Mm -hmm. harm reduction. It's about how do we actually move towards transformational change that goes beyond changing use of force policies, but includes uh, building alternatives to the police and defunding the police. Um, And I think that ought to be supported and centered in this moment because that's what communities are demanding.
1: Yeah, it it, it feels like, because this movement has been um, amplified by what's going on online, a lot of people, including myself, have been drawing resources from, you know, little snippets here and there, little snippets here and there. And there've been organizers and activists hosting Zoom calls and, and, you know, showing people in presentations what, what they wanna do. But it does feel like right now, everyone is left to their own devices to try and figure out what any of these things mean which invariably means that everybody gets to, you know, uh, I guess make up what the thing means. So you're talking about reforms, Sam, which I think a lot of people understand. If we're talking about defunding, Patrice, we'll go back to you and then we'll, we'll start moving around. But what does defunding the police mean? Because for some people, what they hear you're saying is take money away from the police as like a punishment for what they've been doing wrong. Sure. I mean, I really think about it pretty simply, which is... What are the things the
3: police are doing right now that can actually be given over to other groups of people, other workers who've been trained to do that particular thing? So we can Uh just start off with homelessness. Police are at the helm of criminalizing the homeless. Um, We don't need them to be at the helm of criminalizing the homeless. We need mayors and county government to actually show up and put dollars and money towards people who are um, homeless and giving them housing and shelter. Um, What about people who have mental health crisis? Why are the police the first responders? Um, This is not actually a job for a police officer. It's a job for a social worker, a psychiatrist. Uh All this infrastructure is essentially gutted in communities that I live in and communities around the country. Uh So what ends up happening, though, is they're replaced with um, over bloated police budgets. And so you look at Los Angeles, where I'm from, which our LAPD department actually receives 54% of the city's budget meaning that everything else that a community needs, they're not receiving, but they are receiving a gun and a badge, and that is deeply
1: unfortunate. Alex, let's switch over to the abolish conversation. As the author of The End of Policing and as a professor, you've looked into the ways that people can live in a police-free world. Now, I won't lie, my mind struggles to understand the concept, and that's maybe because I've never seen it. You know, sometimes you can't imagine what you've, you've never come across. What exactly does the end of policing mean? What, what does it mean to abolish the police? Well, it's really more about a
2: process driven by a set of principles than it is some predetermined outcome. I think what we're seeing on the streets today when people say defund the police, yes, it's about these immediate changes that Patrice is talking about, But it's also about a generation of young people, you know, crying out for a world that isn't driven by racial and class inequalities that are enforced by policing. And the sad truth is, is that that has been the role that police have played in American society and enforcers of systems that produce these inequalities. And and every time we turn a problem over to them, it it makes those inequalities worse in the long run. Mm -hmm. So police abolition is about trying to reduce the burden of policing
1: today while we work to build something better for the future. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Michael, maybe you can help me. If, if there are no police, are, are, like, are, are you proposing or do you see a world with no police or is it just a different kind of people who enforce laws? What, what does that mean? We say abolish the police because we mean abolish the police. Right.
0: (laughs) There's there's no mincing of language there. There's no there's nothing that we're trying to trick you on. Um, But the thing I think that where I've come down is just like who's making the positive uh, argument for the police at this point? And I I say that because tell me something right now that the police are good at other than whooping ass, like other than doing that. What are they good at? Um, they they don't prevent murders. They come in and they try to figure out who did the murder afterward. Mm-hmm. And they don't do any of the things that they're sent out to do. Like Patrice is telling us, it's saying like, we want them to like solve homelessness. But it, what that means is just get the homeless people out of the street, right? We want them to solve these mental health crises. but that just means, kill the people that are having mental health breakdowns. None of the things that we, we, we ask them to do, they're good at. And so then we keep giving them lots and lots of money to do those things. Yeah,
5: I think one of the things that people always say when you start talking about abolishing the police or defunding the police is what about murder, right? What about murder? What about rape? People always say to me, well, what if your kid got kidnapped as if that's not something I've worried about? every single day as a parent um my since the day he was born right the reality is that the police aren't doing a very good job of handling those situations right and that when we picture accountability in this country we're relying on a violent system to reduce violence right we're relying on a cruel system to reduce cruelty and we are funding the back end of of of, of social ills instead of the front end of addressing them. So what we see is that like right now it's very hard to imagine a world without police. It's very hard to imagine a world defunding the police because that's all we have to rely on. We are dreaming of a new world. Um, And the ability to imagine a new world is exciting. This is exciting, right? I mean, it's hard to step out of what we know, but it's an opportunity to think about if we were designing this from scratch, is this what we would have designed? Is this what the police would have designed? I don't think it is.
1: Stick around, because when we come back, I'll be back with our panel discussing more on how to reform America's police departments. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with several activists and experts about reforming America's police departments. Here's more of that discussion. I think a lot of the conversation that I've heard from everybody on this panel and and from every author that I've read or everyone who's written a study on it says the same thing. You cannot talk about crime without talking about lack of opportunities, without talking lack of resources, without talking communities that are oppressed or not, or underserved, underserved communities. So my question then becomes what is the process? Cause I'll, I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, I go, what happens in the interim? We've seen repeatedly in America, police departments that go on ghost lows or go on like basically mini strikes, even if they don't call it a strike. What process do you see unfolding on the way there, because you're saying to these people, we're, we're getting rid of the police as you know it. And I mean, police departments hire thousands and thousands of people who earn a living from this. I can see many people who don't have a vested interest in allowing a smooth transition. So is, you know, have, have any of you seen any thought that's been put into how that transition would happen?
2: Yeah, you know, there's two ways to think about it. It's manufacturing the political consent for this And part of that story is about neutralizing the power of police unions who have become a locus for a kind of ideology that says the only way we can solve our problems is with people with guns. And in New York in the last week, over 15 elected officials rejected police endorsements and went and took police contributions and gave them away to bail funds. They said, we're not going to work with these police unions anymore, not because of their pensions, but because of their toxic politics. But the other thing is that we have very concrete interventions in mind to deal with very specific things that police do, including shootings and homicides. We have evidence that shows that well-funded and well-run community-based anti-violence initiatives, credible messenger programs, can reduce the violence without driving young people into mass incarceration or labeling them gangbangers or
1: super predators. Let, let's talk about the racial element then, which is how do you convince large swaths of America's population who are wealthier and white to buy into a policy where they go, we do like the police. Why would they buy into your philosophy? How, how do you try and move that needle? Because it, the needle will need to be moved at some point to get to the tipping.
5: Well, it's an interesting question because in many of those communities, they barely have the police, right? What we're asking them to imagine is a world like the one that they live in. In many of these communities, police are not driving down their streets. They're not seeing the police at every at every juncture. Every, you're not seeing people aren't being stopped and frisked on their sidewalks, right? When their kid gets caught smoking weed, they deal with it at home. <laughs> the idea of them liking the police is largely theoretical, I think, and not tangible. And it's interesting because I think in many communities where the police are the most present, those are the communities that are calling for less police. But at the
1: same time, respectfully, Josie, I I find, like, when you read the stats or if 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 you just read through America's history, a lot of the time, Black leaders and, you know, Black community leaders, they're the ones who are asking for more police, you know? When people talk about the crime bills back in the day in America and being tough on crime, I've seen the videos of black community leaders saying, we need you to send in more police, send in as many police as, but we need more police. Is there a disconnect in, in the black community where, is it like older black conservative people? or is, I don't even know what it is, like not conservative as in like Republican, Democrat, but rather just older black people saying, no, we need more police. And, and, and a different generation saying a different thing.
5: I think what, James Foreman wrote an incredible book about this a couple of years ago, and I think one of the things that he concluded that I think is worth keeping in mind is that um, historically, in a, you know, you think about the late 80s, the early 90s in particular, when Black leaders were calling for more police, they were also calling for a lot of other resources. We'd like more police. We'd also like better schools. We'd like our kids to be able to go to the park. We'd like our, an after-school program. We'd like jobs, right? And what they got was more police, <laughs> but they didn't get the other stuff. And so what we're seeing now is that only investing um, in, in law enforcement does not create the kind of change and does not create the better community that we want to see. When I worked in the South Bronx, they couldn't get their trash picked up <laughs> for weeks. But you could find a police officer if you walked five steps in either direction. Is that the kind of world anybody wants to live in? I don't, I truly don't think anybody, white, wealthy, poor, black, immigrant, non-immigrant, wants to live in that world.
3: I also think, to Josie's point and to your question, Trevor, there is part of this process is also culture people people having to change and culture changing mm-hmm. and that often takes time and i think we're in a moment where we can call for more because when i show up to a march in los angeles where fifty thousand people come out it's not all black people it's a multiracial movement led by black people but i see all types of folks holding up black lives matter signs defund signs a largely a younger generation saying we are tired of the ways in which police have related to black people and we stand on their side um, Natalie Portman, who is Natalie Portman, you know, I had a long talk with her about defund the police. the BL Movement for Black Lives put out a letter where we had celebrities and community sign on to it to defund the police. And Natalie had to have like we had a real heart to heart and she said to me, "I really feel safe with the police. And saying this to you makes me deeply uncomfortable, but it's true. Wow, I don't know how to I don't know how to deal with this contradiction. She' was like, I'm gonna go wow. study. Send me everything you have. I'll do my own research. And a couple days ago, she wrote on her Instagram post, um, "I'm with the Defund the Police movement, and here's my process. I was wow. not. I was deeply uncomfortable with this because as a white woman, they have they have kept me safe. I have called the police on people. They have kept me safe." and now i understand that my safety has everything to do with black people's unsafety that to me is where we're going people are are reimagining taking the time they're studying they're trying to figure this thing out because there's no easy fix
0: yeah and i think we we have to take note of how long that process can be right so like formal uh, protest against police violence in this country by black folks been happening since the early 1900s right like and then White affluent liberals sort of understand that concept around 1967, with the Kerner Commission being, uh, you know, put together by uh, President Lyndon Johnson, and then being like, oh. This is going to keep happening unless we fund these programs. And then we have the, the building of mass incarceration and the investment in um, policing and further policing, the 94 crime bill. And then you have Black Lives Matter in 2013. And now we're getting to defunding the police. Like that's a long arc. And it's understanding like there's a lot happening, like some some weeks or years. Um, and so there's a lot of rich opportunity right now for that kind of consciousness shifting.
1: It's interesting that you say it is a new movement because it does feel completely different, not just in the physical movement of people, but in the movement of ideas, the way the, the, the Overton window has shifted completely. Um, you know, I, I think what's 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 interesting to me uh, is is even to, to Sam, for instance, uh, you know, as part of the organization 8 Can't Wait, you guys came out and very quickly to respond to what was happening. You know, you received a little bit of criticism within the community, but what I found interesting was you guys didn't dig your heels in Instead, you sort of shifted your resources toward defund, and you said, yes, the movement is here now, and we're moving towards that, and we support this, which you always had from the beginning, but you, you work to clarify that mess- message. That's not an easy thing for people to do, and I wanted to know why you guys decided to do that.
4: Look, I mean, we recognize that this moment is unique. This is the culmination of so much work from so many people across the country, and the ultimate demand that we are hearing is that people want to reimagine and transform the current system. They want to defund the police. They want to build alternatives. Uh, And so, yes, it's true that, you know, having a use of force policy that bans things like chokeholds and strangleholds or, you know, makes deadly force a last resort rather than a first resort, yes, that can reduce police killings. um, But ultimately, the goal should be ending police violence in its entirety. And we recognize that I think the best strategy to do that is to be supporting the work that's happening on the ground and shifting those resources away from police and into community-based alternatives.
1: All right, well, that's part two of our panel discussion on how Black Lives Matter and the defund movement and the abolish movement are looking to reshape America's policing as we know it. After the break, we'll be wrapping things up and figuring out how to get where people are trying to go. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today on our episode, we've been talking to activists and experts on how to reform America's policing system. There's clearly a problem, but how do you fix it? Well, here's the final part of our discussion. Let me, let me ask you this before we wrap up the panel. Um, where can people go? Because, you know, Patrice, not everyone is Natalie Portman, so not everybody will get to talk to you one-on-one, which I think everyone would benefit from. But but where where can people go? You know, one of the things I've struggled with in America is... Um, it's very strange, especially during these years, because it, th- there are many almost leaderless movements. I would call them. You know, I come from a country where they're okay, full, Trevor, leader full. Yeah, no, but but I'm saying leaderless in terms of like you know. In, so let me give you an example. In South Africa, you know who to talk to about the thing. In America, it feels like everyone talks, and then it, the the message get the message gets muddied. You know, everyone gets to own abolish, everyone gets to own defund, everyone gets to own. And in my in my humble opinion it then becomes difficult to know what is or isn't a policy or an idea because people don't know who to talk to. So where can people go? Where can people learn? Where can people actually find a centralized source of information for, like, no, this is defund, this is abolish? Because otherwise it it feels like it becomes very easy for bad actors and other people to just be like, oh, no, abolish means that you're solving your own crimes. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? (laughs) So... So uh, genuinely, for people who are watching and who are completely open, they're not blocking. They're like, Patrice, I want to learn. I want to be Natalie Portman as well. Where do I go and who do I look to? Well,
3: okay, so I hear you and that makes total sense. And this is like a deep, I think this is really generational. Our generation is not interested in a single person being the messenger for a number of reasons. Number one, it's not safe. Many of the things we're talking about, we're calling out the police. That's not safe to have a central leader. It's uh, much safer to have a decentralized system. And so I think what happens, and I really appreciate you, Sam, for um, just naming what you just named, you probably were talking to some of my, my folks as organizers, um, I think what we have to do is sort of be on message as a team and sometimes that that takes a little bit of time but once we get there you could see the conversation right when we first started having the conversation what 15 days ago about defund um the media was looking at us like we were crazy they were like Uh that's cute let's keep talking about black lives matter um but what you've seen now is almost every single call i get from a media outlet is about defund or this conversation so we're in a in the right place um all of our organizations and i think all the work that we're doing is is um, on the same pathway towards where we want to go. So Black Lives Matter, blacklivesmatter.com, you can find us there, or the Movement for Black Lives, which is n4bl.org. Both those organizations are having a robust conversation about um, defund, and they're having it not just... As communication strategists, but they're also thinking about what are the real policies. So those are the two organizations. But I don't want to say those are the organizations because right. I think it's really important that people feel like they have other places to go because this country is huge. There are millions of people here. We do need um, many groups and people to have the the right understanding of this moment and how to move forward.
1: Well, I uh, I can't thank you enough, honestly. You know, I I think. Right now, what's been sparked in Minneapolis has has seen its ripple effects felt around the world. And um, you are some of the people who I think many people are looking to, not just for answers, but guidance. But as you said, even just a shakeup to think of the world differently. So thank you for taking the time. Um, Thank you for joining us on the Daily Social Distancing Show. And um, who knows, maybe in a few years, we'll be having this conversation saying, man, not only do Black Lives Matter, but now uh, we're solving our own crimes. So thank you so much for joining me, everybody. I appreciate your time. Um, Patrice, Michael, Josie, Sam, and uh, Alex. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank love you, you all. Thank love you, you
3: all. Hi, team. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Well, there you have it. A uh, lot of food for thought. And thank you so much to Patrice, Josie, Sam, uh, Michael, and Alex for joining us on the show. Uh, I hope this adds some clarity to what the defund movement is about and what the abolish movement is about. And as Patrice said, go and read There are some websites that are amazing and informative, and I hope they can help you too. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, The Daily Show and Comedy Central have been donating to three groups who are fighting against police brutality and systemic racism. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Equal Justice Initiative, and The Bail Project. Now, if you'd like to help and you can donate, then all you have to do is go to the following link and give whatever you can. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there